So like many of you, I was uh, affected quite a bit by what happened in Charlottesville and in the period after that. And I actually uh, grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and went out to Charlottesville a lot. (laughs) I I knew that area pretty well. And my parents actually moved to uh, Virginia uh, from Washington, D.C., although after I had gone to college, but I spent a lot of time in the uh, hills and mountains of Virginia, went through Charlottesville all the time. So uh, maybe like many of you, was quite affected in, in different ways and was just wondering how to um, uh, connect uh, a response to some of what occurred in that situation with our fundamental practice, with our basic approach. And so I... Uh, was just letting things settle and came up with the theme of um, that that'll be the theme of my talk 10 ways of practicing with those with different or opposite views and the opposite views could be fill in the blank you know and so how do we how do we keep our clarity of intention really the core intentions of our practice, which are to be mindful, to be wise, to bring compassion and kindness, but also to develop skillful response, skillful action. How do we do that when there are people who have uh, significantly different views than we have? And I'd like us just to actually reflect right now on, for yourself, on the ones uh, in your life that may have different views. And they can be people in your uh, family, perhaps extended family. They can be people at work. They can be people in your community. And they can also be public figures. Uh, you, know, you know, some of those who marched or whatever, people, people on, um, as it were, the different sides. And they're, you know, they're even within people who were protesting what was, you know, what was the, the marches in Charlottesville. There are actually quite a few different sides among the protesters, right? And so, so just contemplate for a moment one or two ways that you have people with different views that you may struggle with some. Again, could be quite personal or could be a public figure or both. Just reflect for a moment. And I'd like you to keep uh, those uh, people in mind as we go through the, these 10 ways of practicing. And you, I invite you to apply them. Maybe you come up with others. I came up with 10 ways of practicing with those with uh, different or opposite views or opposing views. Um, I had to cut the list short at 10. 
I was accumulating them. They were getting to be 13 and 15. And, you know, and I, I should say that each of these 10 could be a week-long or a month-long curriculum. I'm going to be brief on a lot of them. They're pointing to aspects of our what we might call our practice. And a lot of them could be the subject of quite uh, deep investigation and outlining. Okay? And... Uh, so keep in mind the people you might have just thought of. Again, either someone in your life or public figures and so forth. And I, as I was preparing the talk, I also uh, I, I looked in my files and I came across uh, something that my uh, close friend and colleague, Diana Winston, had written like in 2004. And she, she wrote a, a, um, an essay with a similar theme. It was called seven reasons why it's better not to hate them, even if they really are horrible, greedy, corrupt, and completely deserve it. <laughs> and, and I think I looked at some of what she had, uh, you know, after I developed the talk, and there, there is some overlap, but that's, uh, that's quite different in any way. So, oh, again, we probably see things quite similarly. Um, so... Um, and I'll, some of these I'll be quite brief with. So 10, 10 ways of practicing when there, there are those in your life, in your direct personal life or, or public figures who have opposing views. Number one, remember the guiding principles and practices. Remember the core principles and practices and here I'm going to actually refer to multiple traditions. You know, we may take ourselves as especially guided by Buddhist practice, but also bring in other approaches and traditions. So we remember, and maybe some of you bore in mind the very famous passage from the Dhammapada, from the Buddha, you know, from 2,600 years ago, where he said, hatred never ends with hatred. Hatred only ends with love. This is an eternal law. Right? And I know many of my colleagues, fellow teachers, have borne that in mind. I think James Barras gave a week or so ago a talk just based on that, remembering that teaching. So these are teachings and pointers. doesn't mean it's easy to follow them. Not even necessarily easy to know what they mean. But we, you know, in difficult times, hopefully we take our guidance from those we deem most wise or most, most kind, most loving. We may also, kind of animated by the Buddhist tradition, remember the emphasis on understanding causes and conditions, that everything comes into being because of causes and conditions. And I'll actually come back to that later. In, in that I in pointing to how it's important to understand some of what brings about you know manifestations of hatred you know in many instances or even just understanding trying to bring understanding to the person with whom you have difficulties we have the teachings about developing metta developing kindness right the uh, the passage from the Metta Sutta from the Buddha says, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. And the Buddha didn't say um, some living beings. 
He didn't say, you should cherish people who, who agree with you. And the other ones, you can do what you wish. Right? He said, all living beings. So it's a tall order, isn't it? That's the teaching. That's the pointer to practice. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the left, outwards and unbounded. It's a radical teaching, right? That may touch something in us, but it's not easy. Again, it's not always easy to know what it means in practice, but these, I think, are our guides in difficult times. Uh, about a thousand years later, the teacher Shanti Deva in India uh, said uh, of how we should approach uh, people who seem to be opponents or enemies. He said, Therefore, just like a treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my uh, behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an opponent or enemy for that person assists me in my conduct of awakening. Hmm. How's that? <laughs> right. You know. From the uh, Tibetan tradition, uh, Dilko Kense Rinpoche, one of the great teachers of the 20th century, said... Unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, strife with outer enemies will never end. Unless the inner forces of negative emotions are conquered, strife with inner with outer enemies will never end. Yeah. We have... Uh, Teachings. I'm going to mention teachings from also from Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I think they're pointers there. You know, those traditions are all complex, and the traditions themselves have multiple, multiple approaches. But I think we can find, perhaps, I think I would say at the depths, something similar. And so we have in the uh, Jewish Bible and the Torah, there are 36 mentions of love the stranger. Love the one who may be unknown to you or difficult. 36 times. You know, the, the guess as to why it was mentioned so many times is that it was hard and that people weren't getting it. <laughs> hey, didn't you hear what I said? <laughs> you know, love the stranger, you know. And we have, uh, you know, of course we have famous passages from the Christian Bible, you know, from... Uh, Jesus, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Right? And of course, that's been, that was what Dr. King took as a central teaching. So it's remembering these. And again, for remembering them may not be to just have them be pat teachings. It may be to struggle with them or to interrogate them, or to ask what they mean. These are not easy. You know, what does this mean in this particular situation? But these are, these are, these are deep teachings. Also from Jesus, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Again, radical teaching. And I don't know Islam as well, but I, I, I looked and I found a few passages that seemed to me going in a very similar direction. This is from one of the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad. Assist your brother or sister 
whether that person is an oppressor or an oppressed. But how shall we do it when someone is an oppressor? Muhammad said, assisting an oppressor is by forbidding and withholding that person from oppression. (laughs) Meaning, don't let the person continue the destructive activity as best you can. This is from Rumi, uh, the great uh, Muslim poet. You know, again, it's always helpful to remember the most popular poet in the U.S. is a Muslim. (laughs) Rumi, right? right? He said, go and wash off all hatred from your chest seven times with water. Then you can become our companion drinking from the wine of love. And then, again, a few more contemporary figures. I'll just mention Gandhi and King. Gandhi said, acts of violence create bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. A nonviolent revolution is a program of the transformation of relationships. It is the test of nonviolence that in a nonviolent conflict, there is no rancor left behind. In the end, enemies are converted into friends. And this is from Dr. King. We rise to the position of loving the person who does the evil deed while hating the deed that the person does. One seeks to defeat the unjust system rather than individuals who are caught in the system. Again, that was one of his ways of bringing that in. Of course, with Gandhi and King, working with this general sense that you meet people with opposing views, with understanding and ultimately kindness, as well as skillful action, was something that they both taught and tried to bring into practice. So that's the, that's the first one. It's remember the guiding teachings and principles when you are with people with whom you have difficulties. Of course, it's, it's not, that's not easy, right? Because what do people who have different views than us, um, what happens to us when, they, when we're with them? They trigger us, they push our buttons, we go into reptilian brain. I was just yesterday buying some paper at Office Depot in Berkeley. And I, it, looked, it seemed like I might have, when I opened my door, uh, hit lightly the car next to me. Um, the person, uh, I didn't notice it, but all of a sudden there was this person two feet from me with very intense face. You know, who said he was sitting in the car and he started talking and, and, and I, I, you know, I was in startle mode, right? I didn't remember this teaching at that moment, <laughs> right? And, and we have things like that that happen all the time, right? And so, uh, but, but about 10 seconds later I did, you know, I remembered something, but immediately it wasn't there, right? Uh, and so, so the practice helps maybe that... Uh, you know, even occur. And I said, oh, I wasn't there right away. Mm, more practice necessary, <laughs> right? So, so number two, 
It's related. Work skillfully with difficult emotions, including anger. This is a second instruction. And of course, we could take, again, we could take a month or a year on this one. And, you know, at times here, I've given uh, talks on that. So on Dharma Seed, there are hour-long explorations of that. And I'll just be very brief here, sort of summarizing how to work skillfully with difficult emotions. I I like to think of it as having really uh, four main guidelines for working with difficult emotions. The first is, of course, the first is know that they're happening. (laughs) Maybe, so I got five now. I just brought in one more. Okay, five. First is just know that they're happening. You have to, that's where mindfulness is the starting point for all response. You know, if you don't know what's happening, we're on automatic, right? So know that it's happening. Have that something in you say, I am irritated. I am going somewhere and so forth. And so number two, when you're out of balance, the first thing you need to do is come back to balance. When we're way out of balance, we can't really have a skillful response. So the second guideline for working in difficult emotions is come back to balance, find ways of doing that. You know, take a walk, do something physical, talk to a friend, do something meditative, and so forth, right? When, when you're taken away by a difficult emotion. Thirdly, be mindful, study it. We have to be really experts on how we react, what we do when we get angry. We have to really know that in ourselves very well. That's part of the power of our practice. We can do that. Uh, Number fourth, very crucial, really track with mindfulness the negative stories. They might be blaming, judging, etc. Really have to track those and know those and as much as possible not feed them. Not easy, right? We'll find that when we have someone with opposing views and we're we're in in some antagonistic relationship, we will just repeat the negative storyline over and over again, right? You know, as if we didn't quite believe it and need to repeat it over and over. (laughs) If we really believed it, wouldn't once be enough? I don't know. It's it's curious the way the mind works, isn't it? Um, When when other people repeat something to me over and over again, it's because they don't think I'm really listening. (laughs) Or they they want to make 100% sure that I've heard it. And then the, the last one is know how to know different ways of working skillfully with difficult emotions, both internally and then in relation with others. And again, I could, we could say a lot about each of those five guidelines, uh, but those, those hopefully can be helpful. Uh, the third point with uh, the third pointer in terms of being with people with difficult views Commit to empathy and understanding. Not easy, right? You know, to have the intention to understand this person who has different views. And again, there may be people in our lives where that's easier. Maybe we are in close relationships and we want to understand, you know, but there are moments, of course, when we're triggered and reactive and there's zero intention to be empathic and understand. And so that remembering that commitment and practicing empathy and understanding actually where it's easy 
is very significant. You know, I, I've given talks here. I think I gave a series of talks on empathy last year and, gave, and actually suggested a concrete empathy practice, which, which is particularly tuning in to what someone else is feeling, what the emotions are, and then what seems to matter for that person. You know, the deeper value. And we have worked with that as a practice. You can work with that with people that are, you know, with whom there's no difficulty. That's it's a valuable practice. We're, I think we're naturally empathic, but in a lot of situations, it's hard to be naturally empathic, right? And so we have to take it, I think, as an intentional practice. And so we can learn, we can practice. Practice with, you know... Uh, your partner, with people at work. Take a practice for a period of time. What's that person feeling? What's, uh, what seems to matter for the person? And there's that very important distinction between that we get from the discipline of nonviolent communication, which you know developed by Marshall Rosenberg. Some of you know that. It's a very important distinction. In that system, it's called the distinction between someone's needs, which are always taken as legitimate, and someone's strategies, which are often quite problematic. And so an alcoholic has a need for peace. That's genuine. The strategy of drinking may be very unskillful, right? Or a country may have a need for security, very legitimate. You know, invading other countries, not always very skillful or legitimate, right? And can I, with someone who has uh, views different than me, can I actually sense, and I may have to listen quite deeply, that there's something quite universally valid about what that person wants. Maybe respect. Maybe to feel autonomy or to feel free. That's not easy practice when people have different views, but if we cultivate empathy where it's easier, we can then bring it to where it's harder. That's how we learn everything. We cultivate it where it's easier. We cultivate mindfulness in protected environments like here, and then we bring it out into the world. That's how all learning and training occurs. There was, there was a powerful story that I came across about a man named Claiborne Paul Ellis, who through empathy actually shifted out of being a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I wanted to tell you the story. He was born uh, in a poor white family, 1927, in Durham, North Carolina. He had very hard time economically. He worked in a garage. He thought that African Americans were the cause of all his problems, why he wasn't doing well economically, and so forth. He followed his father and joined the local Ku Klux Klan, Eventually, he, was, uh, he rose to leadership in the Klan. In 1971, so he would have been 44, probably at the, you know, right fully involved in, in the local Klan, he was invited as a prominent local citizen. Again, you know, North Carolina, prominent local citizen. <laughs> it wouldn't happen in Berkeley, I think. <laughs> in any case, but... Uh, but um, That was my commentary on the story. Uh, But he was invited to a 10-day community meeting to tackle racial tensions in schools 
And he was chosen, again, why they chose him, but they chose him to head a steering committee with Anne Atwater, who was a black activist whom he despised. Okay, this would be a great film, right? (laughs) So they were together on this committee for 10 days. He later said that working with her exploded his prejudices. He saw that she shared the same problems of poverty. This is what he said. I was beginning to look at a black person, shake hands with that person, and see that person as a human being. It was almost like being born again. This came out of empathy, just out of ordinary interaction. On the final night of the meeting, he stood in front of a thousand people and he tore up his membership card in the Klan. Quite amazing. So you can start to get a sense of what might be some of the background of some of the people who may be neo-Nazis or white nationalists, right? It's not so simple, right? He later became a labor organizer for a union whose membership was 70% African-American. Quite a story, isn't it? So that's number three, develop empathy and the intent to understand. And related to that, number four, cultivate compassion. And again, in a way, empathy shades into compassion. But we also have very distinct compassion practices that we can work with. Can I, and again, this is not easy. You have someone with really different views. The last thing you want to do is be compassionate, right? Often, I mean, often, what's the ordinary dynamic? I'm right, the other person's wrong. End of story. No spiritual practices. You know, get with it, you person. Of, you know, right, something like that. that. That's the ordinary mind, right? That's the ordinary mind working. So again, there's typically polarization. And so bringing compassion, again, again, we, pract- we can practice with this with people we really care about. You know, we have difficulties with them. Can I bring compassion? Again, not easy. Can I really hear the story from Longfellow? If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Another way of saying it is that uh, we can remember, again, this comes from core Buddhist teachings, that hurt people hurt people. Remember that? And so when someone is hurting you, or you think someone is hurting you, it's very likely that's coming out of pain. Hard to remember that, isn't it? At certain moments. But we can work with that. We can work with that. We can also even see how we are in many ways like the other person. Am I ever like that person? Very likely. And ultimately, we can see how when someone does something unskillful or harmful or hateful, in a way that person is far away from that person's depth of love and wisdom. Right? You know, there, there was an uh, Aikido teacher 
that I heard about who said that the principle of Aikido is reconciliation. One who fights another person has broken the connection with the universe. When you fight another person, you've broken the connection with the universe. That was from a Japanese uh, Aikido teacher, one of the great teachers of the 20th century. There's a very powerful passage that has been with me for a few decades uh, that I wanted to share with you. This is, this is really a, an example of practicing in an extreme situation. This is from the writings of Etty Hillesum. Anyone know Etty Hillesum, her work? Oh, you should immediately, right after, 11, or right after noon, go out and order the book. Okay. This is from uh, Etty Hillesum was a um, young woman who was in uh, Amsterdam in Holland. She was in her early 20s when the Nazis uh, invaded and occupied uh, Holland. What was that? 1940, right? I think. And, you know, then she was Jewish, so she was moved to eventually to the ghetto. And... uh, she actually had chances to escape, but she actually, she said, I wanted to stay with my people. And she was sent to uh, a, what was called a transit camp, which was not a, not a punishment camp or a concentration camp called Westerbork, in, I think in, on the uh, Dutch-German border. And then eventually she was sent to Auschwitz where she died. And this is what she wrote in Westerbork. And she again, she's, she's using... In some of the teachings we've looked at in these very extreme situations, in this situation. She was in the transit camp. She said, when I think of the faces of that squad of armed green uniform guards, oh my God, those faces, I looked at them, each in turn from behind the safety of a window, and I have never been so frightened of anything in my life as I was of those faces. I sank to my knees with the words that preside over human life and God made man after his likeness. That passage spent a difficult morning with me. Can you imagine having that presence of mind to be with that teaching in those circumstances? It's quite, and the book is extraordinary. It's her, her writings. Most of, most of the writings were from uh, while she was still in Amsterdam. That's number four, compassion. Um, number five, and I'm, if I don't get through all of these, I want to have discussion time. And I think if I, don't get, if, I, if I find myself at the time when I want to have discussion on like number six or seven, I might just read very quickly seven, eight, nine, and ten and then have discussion. So, and then let you take it further. Okay, so we'll see. Okay, so number, number uh, five, know the history and dynamic of the views uh, that are opposed to yours. And I was thinking of this particularly in terms of public views, right? I think it's very helpful, uh, again, to know where hurtful views come out of. And again, you can work with this with people maybe who are in your family, and maybe you know something of their biography. You know, maybe someone with different political views in your family. Anyone have someone with different political views in your extended family? Okay. Yeah, there you go. Okay. okay. Yeah. Seek out family gatherings. Have, you know, practice what we've been talking. <laughs> okay. Um, 
And so we can know, we can have, maybe have some sense where biographically does that view come from? I think it's also helpful socially. You know, where, where do racist views come from? You know, for me, knowing the history is very, very important. You know, and knowing, you know, if you look back to um, the ancient history of where racism came from in the U.S., in Virginia, in the late 17th century, it was very clearly a divide and conquer strategy by the people who had money and power pitting the poor whites against the poor blacks in that case. Very, very clear. It was, it was a very clear, and that's the way it is mostly in, in many, many countries. It's divide and conquer, scapegoating, and so forth. Knowing that history can be helpful because you can see how people get caught up with that. You know, knowing, you know, reading some of the history of how racist ideas developed, of how, you know, I, personally I've studied the uh, history of the Nazis and you know how did they appeal to certain people, right? You know, and we can see that people who develop uh, view racist views or Nazi or neo-Nazi views typically again are coming out of some kind of pain. It doesn't excuse the views, but it's helpful to know that. It's helpful to know. You know, uh, there was a very interesting uh, interview in the last week or so. That was on uh, Democracy Now! Has anyone listened to that sometimes? Some of you do. It was with a former uh, neo-Nazi, skinhead neo-Nazi. And and he he actually had shifted away from that. And they interviewed him. And it was really interesting to hear his story. So I wanted to share this with you some, just from the the interview. He said, this is from a man named Christian Picciolini. I think that's how you pronounce it. He said, uh, in 1987, when I was 14 years old, I was recruited. You know, he said, I was in Chicago, which was the home and birthplace of the neo-Nazi skinhead movement. I was standing in an alley at 14 years old and the man pulled his car up as I was smoking a joint and he came over me and said, don't you know that's what the communists and Jews want you to do to keep you, keep you docile? You know, at, at 14, I was a marginalized kid. I had been bullied. I didn't know what a communist or a Jew or even the word docile meant. But this man brought me into a family. He gave me an identity. He fed my sense of purpose. While I was all misdirected, being marginalized and disaffected and feeling abandoned, I was willing to trade that in the feeling of power when I felt the most powerless for something that now I think was evil and eventually it swallowed me whole. Right? So, and then he said, I was a member of the Chicago area skinheads. Eventually I became the leader of the group when the man who recruited me uh, went to prison. I became the leader of this group and we were very involved with acts of violence. Our primary goal was marketing and recruitment. I started a band which was a white power band that had violent lyrics that incited people to go out and commit hate crimes. And that was a recruiting tool. It was a social movement to get people together, young, angsty teenagers who were angry at the world, who felt like they had been pushed aside and now were given someone to blame for it. I find it helpful to hear those inner dynamics, right? We don't just have people in some category, right? But we can have the sense there's something going on. These are human beings, right? Not easy sometimes to take that, you know, 
he said, I was involved for eight years. I did have doubts the whole time. I came from an Italian immigrant family who came to the U.S. in the 60s who were often the victims of prejudice. So I wasn't raised with racist beliefs. It wasn't part of my family DNA. And I questioned myself the whole time, but I squashed it because of the power and the acceptance. They were way more important to me, and I was scared to lose that. Essentially, over those eight years, I started to meet people who I'd kept outside of my social circle, who I hated, African-Americans and Jews and gay people. The truth was I had never had a meaningful interaction with any of those groups. When I started to, I started to receive compassion from the people that I least deserved it from and who least, and when I least deserved it, they could have attacked me. They didn't. They knew who I was and they took it upon themselves to show me empathy when I deserved it the least. And that helped me humanize them and dispel the stereotypes. So again, very powerful stories, aren't they? And and eventually he decided to leave and um, he he said he was a national and international figure at the time and he got threats and he says, I still to this day receive death threats almost on a daily basis. For what he did. So that's uh, number six is know the history. But, you know, I think it's particularly important for the public figures, but know the history of what leads to the views. Right? And I think you can, you know, typically find that there's hurt and pain. Again, doesn't excuse it, doesn't mean not to act. In fact, point number six, respond and act appropriately. <laughs> so all of what I'm talking about involves inner practice, and of course, respond and act appropriately. We could take what, how, you know, another few weeks on that one? Okay, so I, I'm just using that as code for use skillful speech, respond when harm is being done, you know, be skillful with conflict, you know, you know. I've been part of seven-day trainings on skillful work with conflict, so I'm going to just point you in that direction. Again, there are talks that we have, that we've explored on what skillful work with conflict is, but skillful action is part of this, is part of, uh, you know, sometimes it's important, someone in your family, a co-worker, you know, we have to speak up. The, you know, the general model is do both inner work and outer response. A lot of, I'm pointing a little bit more to inner work, but both are, both are crucial. Okay, number seven, Watch the tendency to dehumanize the person with different views to turn that person into an other. To put them in a category. Watch that tendency. Anyone recognize that tendency in yourself? Okay. One or two people have raised their hands. (laughs) Okay. So these are very strong tendencies. We want to tell a story. This person is wrong. Put the person in a category. Um... I'll go through the last ones a little more quickly. Number eight, work with the judgmental mind and other forms of reactivity. That's a favorite one here, as you know. Um, How do you, the the judgmental mind says, usually in this sort of situation, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, you are this, you are that, you know, labels people, blames them, judges them, you know, and so forth. We have a, what we might call a dualistic moral framework, and the other person is bad, or the other group is bad, right? Notice that tendency to have that judgmental attitude. And again, remembering 
the work we've done on judgments is that uh, the judgmental mind can often see something very clearly and accurately. That's not the problem. The problem is the reactivity that leads us to blame and judge, push away. We can combine working through the reactivity with preserving the insight, the clear seeing, and using it for the purposes of skillful action. Okay. Um, two more, then I want to have some, some talk together. Okay. Number nine, do inquiry into why you have such a charge with the other person. What's going on inside? You know? In other words, can you take the noticing of a reaction as a starting point for inner inquiry? Do this with people you're close to. Do this at work. Do this when you watch a presidential address, if you watch them. Okay? And can I take, oh, what's going on with me that I have such a strong reaction? Again, you want to bring this together with the other ways of responding that I mentioned. You know, what are my stories? What are my reactions? What are my thoughts? You know, um, this can be a very crucial practice. I did this for a number of years um, with people often that I really liked, but they, we had different views. I found myself having a reaction. What's going on with me? Ask questions like, is there possibly something I can learn from this person? Why am I having such a strong reaction? Is there something in my own background that's getting triggered? What's going on with me? Do I really have 100% truth? Am I certain of that? Right? You can ask a series of questions um, and so forth. So there's a whole inquiry process. You know, and if we were doing this in detail, we could actually, um, you know, sometimes when we, we uh, do... Retreats. I, I co-teach often uh, six or seven day speech and communication retreats. And we have people actually have someone else role play you. You can do role play of the other person. That's interesting. You role play. What would that be like? You role play someone with whom you have really different views. You can learn things. There's a lot to learn there. And then the last one. Keep cultivating the intention to practice with this person. That intention plays a big role. Remember, our general understanding is the most difficult thing about bringing more mindfulness, wisdom, kindness, that, that's uh, sort of, those are the elements of what I'm calling generally practice, right? To bring those elements in. The, the hardest thing is not to, not to be kind or to be mindful. The hardest thing is to remember to practice. It's not hard to practice, not hard to be present or mindful, really. It's hard to remember, especially in our daily lives, especially when we're triggered, especially when we have these divides. So can I, what helps me to have the intention to bring all of what I've talked about into practice? And, and the development of intention is really crucial. Like, can you go to a situation, maybe a family gathering, where it's fairly predictable that there'll be different views expressed and shared, right? And can you go in saying, okay, I'm going to, when that happens, I'm going to go to empathy, you know? Or I'm going to, when that happens and I feel really triggered and I don't know what to do, I'm going to take a bathroom break. (laughs) A very crucial practice technique. (laughs) Uh, 
I'm going to do that. To go, in, to go into a situation, I, you know, I had difficult relations with someone at work who actually had authority, authority over me, so that complicated things. But, um, and I had meetings with him often, and I would go in, after a while, when I kind of saw that I was getting reactive a lot, I would go in with very strong intentions to bring the best wisdom, skillful speech, mindfulness that I could into those meetings. Not easy. So intention is really, really crucial. Um, I was thinking about this. There was um, some of you know who were here that I, I taught in Israel, Palestine for five weeks and came back just about a month ago. And one of the places I visited was uh, a place near the Sea of Galilee called Sfat, which is the center of Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah. And I was just reading a passage yesterday, which, which is very interesting, which is about intention. It's, it's basically saying that with your intention and bringing practice in, you can, uh, the word that they use in that tradition is you can mend the universe by every action. The word is tukun. Some of you know the word tukun. It means to repair or to mend. And so there's a little passage here from a 16th century Kabbalistic mystic named Isaac Loria, who lived in this place called Sfat. He said, you can mend the cosmos by anything you do, even eating. He's going to talk about eating, but it's really, you can, mend, you can basically repair things by everything you do. And this is from the Jewish tradition. Do not imagine that God wants you to eat for, more, for mere pleasure to fill your belly. No, the purpose of everything is mending. And he understands that as coming into alignment with the sacred and with the universe. Sparks of holiness intermingle with everything in the world, including inanimate objects. So it's basically, can you take your, with your action, with that intention, there's a kind of healing. And I'll, and I'll finish with this story from um, a person named Paul Reps, who was an American who lived in Japan, one of the early transmitters of Zen. And he told, he told there was a story that he told. He... Um, he went to the, uh, he was visiting a Zen teacher in uh, Korea and he had to get a, a, a visa of sort. He went to the passport office in Japan to apply for his visa and was informed that his request was denied due to the war that had just broken out in Korea. So this was in 1950. Rep sat down in the waiting area. He had come thousands of miles with the plan to study with the Korean master. He was frustrated and disappointed. What did he do? He reached out his thermos and poured himself a cup of tea. With a calm and focused mind, he watched the steam rising and dissolving into the air. He smelled its fragrance, tasted its tasty, bitter flavor, enjoyed its warmth and wetness. Finishing his tea, he put his paper back on which he wrote a haiku poem. Mindfully, he walked back to the clerk behind the counter and bowed and presented him with the poem and his passport. The clerk read it and looked, looked up deeply into his eyes. Smiling, he bowed with respect, picked up the visa, and stamped it with a passport to Korea. <laughs> to Korea. Here is what the haiku said. And this, this is, I think, relevant to our bringing this sense of action, of responding, is, a way, is itself a response. He says, drinking a cup of tea I stopped the war. Drinking a cup of tea, I stopped the war. 
done with that attitude. So what it's pointing to is every response that we make that comes out of that empathy, kindness, understanding, and so forth, is in a way, to use the Jewish phrase, mending the world. And so that's, this is, that's the last one, having that intention to bring this into practice and to, uh, to mend the world that has people fighting with different views. So, thank you. Thank you very much. I notice I, I do get emotional with some of those stories. Did, did you? Yeah, there's something. I mean, I'm in a role where I have to kind of hold it together. <laughs> um, maybe I shouldn't all the time. I don't know. But it's something, what is that? There's something that get, gets touched very deeply by going against the condition reaction, right? Something, or these kind of like that story of what happened in uh, Japan. It's like a breakthrough, some kind of breakthrough. Uh, you know, uh, what? Uh, miraculous breakthrough. Right? And something's very touching there for me. So other, other questions, responses, thoughts, uh, short haiku poems. <laughs> okay. I'm just curious, what's the name of the book by Etta Hilson, please? Uh, there are a few books. The one that I have is called An Interrupted Life. An Interrupted Life. I think if you just, uh, her name is spelled H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. I think if you just look that up, you'll find, I think there are a few other books. There's, that, that was a collection of her journals, quite something. Yeah. Other responses, thoughts, questions of any kind, please. I just saw, uh, saw a new DVD uh, that's out called I Am Not Your Negro. Yeah. by and about uh, James Baldwin yeah. and it is just so wonderful and it just brings him back into the present yeah. day and he's just so right on and yeah. current and, and I commend it to everyone. Yeah, thank you. And anything about seeing that film that in your mind might be connected with what we've just explored? Well, he talks a lot about um, you know the racial... Uh, troubles that were going on then yeah. and how fresh and current it still is and uh, something that just really stuck with me that um, I had just never thought of this before uh, and I don't uh, want to appear stupid but it, it he was mostly saying it's the white people's problem right? and it's so clear that um, you know, it's the, 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 the attitudes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. We've got uh, a lot of hands, yeah. There's one at the back and one in the, in the right. Yeah, you, yeah, good. So I was re- listening recently to a, a podcast by Krista Tippett. I don't know if you're familiar with yeah. her. And she was interviewing this woman, I'm sorry, I can't remember her name, who um, was part of the Catholic Church yeah. and then became um, essentially the pro-choice voice of the Catholic Church and spent years and years working, um, and and still is, um, 
you know, I, I don't necessarily want to say to change views, but to try to understand how, how people can come together. And a lot of what she said, um, you know, really, really differentiated this, um, you know, understanding what is the need versus what is the strategy. Yeah. She says she finds when she sits down with people who have opposing views, um, they often have the same needs. Like, they're not, That's they're right. not different. Um, that's right. they, they just have very different strategies about how they come out. That, that's such a key distinction, yeah. And I was thinking also that uh, uh, I taught for four years at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. And I, I uh, this was about 30 years ago, and I taught ethics classes. And we would often look at issues of abortion, among other, look at a lot of controversial ethical issues. And I emphasized the really the quality of respect for people with different views you know, in this class of undergraduates. And they, they took that, they accepted that. They had very different views. But we, we basically said, can I listen and have respect for this person's views? And we, our process was great, right? People really wanted to listen and people felt like they could be heard and understood and have different views. And it went from like a battleground to something else, which was felt very healthy. And, you know, I'm glad that they accepted my suggestion to emphasize the process of talking and not just the content. But that's, that's a way to go, like if you're in groups, right? If you're in groups to really uh, focus on how people talk to each other and can you listen for, you know, can you listen more deeply? You know, one thing I didn't say is that it can really be a nice uh, guiding principle is when you have a a difficulty with someone, try to listen for what is beneath the words. We get caught up with the words, right, sometimes. Can you listen beneath the words to what's really there, that deeper need? Often the words will just express a position or strategy which is different from actually what matters for the person. That's really, I found that really important. Okay, here, and then there, and then then here, and then here, if we get there. Um, I've been joining some friends a uh, little closer to your mouth, please. I've been joining some friends on uh, Sunday mornings every once in a while at the Glide Church oh, yeah. in the city, which is it's very inclusive and, and, you know, it's just a real mix of people. And on the back screen, uh, on the back wall behind the, the pastor, they they beautiful pictures and sayings. And my friend sent me this one, and I've really been working on it for a couple of weeks. And this one says... Forgive them, even if they are not sorry. <laughs> and yeah, and, yeah. The, and for me, that some, a light went off in my head yeah. where it's, it's about me. It, it's not about them, especially for the ones that are never going to be sorry. And I think that really ties into what you're saying yeah. is, where does that lack of remorse or being empathy on their their part come that's from. Right. that's right and it comes from pain and fear and and their story but it's still hard it's really hard yeah this to is, forgive people that aren't yeah, not at all to say this is easy but this this um you know and i think again it's good to emphasize that a lot of these capacities we develop further by uh cultivating them where it's easier you know when we're talking about different views we're already to a significant uh, uh, significantly high degree of difficulty. If we only cultivate these where we have difficulties, nothing as much is going to happen. You have to practice them where it's easier. Right. Like, again, like with every kind of learning. Yeah. 
We have thank one. You. Thank yeah. you so much. I wanted to say we really appreciate all the work that you've done so that you could be here teaching us. We're thank so you. grateful for you. Yeah. Thank you so much. We've just returned from viewing the eclipse in Oregon. A little closer. We've just returned from viewing the eclipse in Oregon. <laughs> yeah. So it was quite, quite, um, quite sacred yeah. and quite meaningful um, with some friends up there. Uh, what I what I would like to say is what I say to people. I like to pray and meditate, but I also like to say something and do something. And I think it, for me and my own experience, that balance is important. Yeah. Um, I appreciate all the teachings and all the philosophies that you've shared today. What I like to say to people is that we are all God's family. Mm -hmm. We are all capable of uplifting humanity. And um, it's very hard for me because I, I get very emotional when people are anything but compassionate, kind, and empathic. Um, so... Part of my process is holding back the tears so that I can speak and be present. Yeah. Um, but that's what that's what I like to say briefly is just that we are all God's family yeah. and um, we are all created in love. I, I appear to be two different races because my legs are white, my arms are white, but my hands are brown from the sun from hiking in the backcountry in the national parks. So if someone looks at my little brown face and my hands... But if they see my legs, I'm all white. But what difference does that make, really? Does it really make any difference? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, please. Yeah, I think we maybe have time for one more. Yeah. Um, I heard it. A little closer. Oh. Um, I heard it talk about a few weeks ago by Robert Sapolsky. He's a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford. And he talked about, he wrote a new book called Behavior. And it, it brought up when you were talking the reptilian type of thing. And he said our behavior is kind of based from a physiology standpoint of view on hormones, how we were raised, which is kind of what we were talking about, and also genetics. And like he actually even talked about things like a holocaust can change your DNA for generations to come. And so... Um, you know, this protest, and I mean, it just, it kind of talked to the point how we're all so different mm -hmm. in a way, like even brothers and sisters, when you look at all these things, um, you know, and what comes out of that in our attitudes yeah. and behavior. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think, I think partly what that's pointing to is that, there, that the uh, level of conditioning that all of us have is quite high. You know, and there, there's a lot, you know, I mean, I, I've sometimes spoken here about the research on implicit bias, which many of you know, just the way that we have conditioning to see certain groups of people as other, right? All of us, right? And, and that, that we, on the other hand, the practices we do, like mindfulness and others, have the power to help cut through that conditioning. So there's both a lot of conditioning and it's not the final word. In fact, far from the final word. But we have to, you know, we have to recognize that. Yeah. Okay, I think probably could talk on this way for another half hour. And I would enjoy that, but I like to honor the, uh, the time. And just invite you to maybe go inside for a moment now as we close.
We'll just see what was important to you from the morning, maybe related to our theme and the talk, maybe just something that came in the meditation, doesn't have anything to do with the theme. See what was important to you from the morning. And is there an intention coming out of our morning time together? And then in closing, I I want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, as we know from both the discussion and some of the sharing earlier, you know, there's both, uh, you know, significant pain among us in in the room here. There's also joy and gratitude. May we hold and be with whatever is there for us as skillfully and with as much care as possible. May we offer the fruits of our time together to ourselves, to each other here in the hall and then beyond the bounds of the hall and out into the world, ultimately the horizon of our Practice is the benefit of all beings. We are a part of all beings. So thank you very much. And I think I think I may post on my website the, the list of ten. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.